We've been looking at the blueprint of the church as seen in the Bible, who and what the people of God are meant to be, and um, we're finishing that today. Uh, I'm going to finish with uh, a fairly sensitive topic in our culture, but something I felt we should address in this series. We're going to look at the church as being the place... What's that? Oh, fine. There was a hiss. Sorry. Carry on, focus. We're in the room. We're going to look at the church as being the place where our beautiful differences are both maintained and expressed, sometimes called complementarity. I want to talk about beautiful difference as it relates to gender, to gifts, and to our generations, although mostly we're going to be talking about gender. So I should start by praying, really. Father, please come and speak to us this morning as we look at your word. I ask God that you'd open our hearts to hear things that will be countercultural, And I ask God for grace in communicating your word this morning. Amen. So uh, we're going to start by looking at Psalm 48 by way of introduction. If you have a Bible and want to go there, I'm going to read verses 1 to 5. This is what it says in Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together and as soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. We have thought on your steadfast love, in verse 9, O God, in the midst of your temple. As, as, as your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. And then finally, there's this picture in, in verse 12. Walk about Zion, go round her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God is forever and ever. He will guide us forever. The city of God, the Bible says, is the joy of the whole earth. And we've seen this term that the city of God, though in the Old Testament was a physical city, the city of God in the New Testament is the people of God. Jesus said to his disciples, you are a city set on a hill. And that place, these people are the temple of God, the bride of Christ, the um, upholders of the gospel and of truth. In this term, we've kind of been walking around the city of God together, pointing out different aspects of it. The psalmist describes thinking on the steadfast love of God, and we've been doing that as it relates to our community. But in the New Testament, the marveling at God's city, God's people, uh, continues, and it moves to celebrating this. In Ephesians 3 verse 10, Paul says, Through the church, the manifold or multicolored wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So it isn't only the visitors to the earthly city who marvel, but rulers and authorities, angels and demons, who are standing aghast at the beauty and the wisdom of God in the church. But what is the manifold wisdom of God in the church? Well, in Ephesians, Paul says it is the uniting into one people from two peoples, Jews and Gentiles, formerly enemies of one another, but now united in one people. But this uniting of hostile parties isn't seen only in the uniting of different peoples and different people groups. In Galatians 3, Paul says that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. 
the manifold wisdom of God is seen in the church is displayed in the uniting of difference into something beautiful. So against that backdrop, we're going to get into it, see the various approaches to difference and what Christianity's answer is as it relates to gender, to our gifts, and to generations. But we'll start with gender. First of all, the world is divided. Uh, divided, it's not just in gender, but it's divided into many irreconcilable and distinct differences. From the beginning, you see in Genesis chapter 1, God separates light from darkness, day from night, Summer from winter with the seasons, the seas from the, 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 the seas from the sky, and then the land from the sea. And those things aren't one and the same. The land is not the same as the sky, and they're not interchangeable. The atheist writer and social critic, a fiery lady named Camille Palia, she points out from the art world and ancient civilizations even more distinctions at work in the world. She says this, there's earth and sky, land and rain, but then also female and male. And females have often and long been associated with land and earth, hence the term Mother Earth. Uh, in Hebrew, in fact, the word for womb is very similar to the word for tomb. And so Job describes, he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. You think, you're not going to return to your mother's womb. No, he's talking about going to the tomb of the grave, that the female and the earth and the womb and the tomb have long been associated. Uh, she goes on, there's the body and head distinction. The difference between body magic, new life, and head magic to do with reason. There are curves and lines and ancient civilizations um, that were either extolling the ancient the um the sacred feminine or masculine you can see in their various art pictures here no back keep going there we go that's Camille Paley if you keep following for me those are the distinctions keep going through a few more and then there we go that's the difference between a society that establishes a, the, the sacred feminine and masculine just in curves and lines moving on next slide uh, cyclical and linear internal and visible next one eastern and western chaos and order nature and society that's according to Camille Palia. The fact that there are differences or opposites in the world ought to be self-evident to us. And these differences are often in conflict with one another. Female versus male, Eastern versus Western, nature versus society. In the beginning, however, the difference between man and woman was not a source of conflict, but a source of joy. In the creation account, when God makes Adam, the Adam, the man from the dust, he forms him alone. The animals he forms in pairs to reproduce, but when it comes to Adam, he forms him alone. He's given a garden and a commission and told to keep it, but early on it becomes clear that Adam isn't complete. He cannot complete, cannot carry out what God wants him to do on his own. And so what happens next seems quite strange in the flow of the story. God declares that Adam's aloneness is not good, tries to find a partner for him, and he does this by parading the animals in front of Adam. He's to name them, but also he's to see with each of the animals that they are not suitable as a life partner for him. The aardvark, not like me. The owl is not like me. The elephant is not like me. That's the point. Animals after animal, not like me, not like me, not like me, not like me. 
And a helper cannot be found that's suitable for him. So he descends into a deep sleep. God creates in the story Eve, woman from the side of man. And when Adam beholds Eve, his first word, despite her being different from him biologically, his first word is a word of sameness. This at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, says Adam. Same, whereas the animals were different. There's a celebration without competition between the man and the woman. We're then told in Genesis that it is male and female together who reflects the image of God, not male alone, not female alone. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, it says, When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. Now, there's a quote behind me, Alistair Roberts Uh, The author says this, We tend to think of the standard unit of humanity as being the individual, but the unit of humanity in Scripture is the man and woman made in the image of God. Male and female are akin to two magnetic poles, structuring time always in reference to one another. He says, Humanity is irreducibly two. It cannot be broken down. So male and female are different, but the Bible says beautifully so. And they, we need one another in order to fully express God's image and in order to complete God's mission that he's given to the world. But the story doesn't end there. After the man and the woman disobey God, their relationship changes and brokenness enters the world with sin. And the difference between men and women becomes a source of friction. In Genesis 3, 16, God says to the woman, your desire will now be for or against, your desire will be against your husband and he shall rule over you. And so we end up with books like Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. And men say, as if to emphasize the difference, oh, you can't understand a woman. And a woman says, if you want a job done properly, get a woman to do it. And so the conflict grows between the sexes. And the conflict still grows. In every society, owing in part to the man's greater strength than the woman, but owing mostly to his sin nature, women have been oppressed and abused by men. And it is far from over. As the recent scandals in government and Hollywood have shown, and along with the Me Too campaign and revelations that something like one in four women uh, say to have been victims of sexual abuse, The conflict continues still. Now as Christians, it's our belief that men and women are each made in the image and likeness of God. What that means is that women ought to be treated with the honor and dignity that is theirs as co-image bearers with men. The laws of nature won't lead us to that sort of mutual honor. In fact, the laws of nature are red in tooth and claw. It is a dog-eat-dog dominance hierarchy in which the strong eat or rape the weak. And so one approach is to embrace conflict and to look to establish who's better than whom, therefore. The other approach, and the opposite problem, is the approach of denying that there's any difference at all between men and women. In modern times, We've done away with the distinction between heaven and earth. The distinction between the visible and the invisible. We've done away with the distinction of anything spiritual. That's what atheism is. 
And along with this, you might say as a result of this, there is also a growing move to do away with the differences between men and women at all. We're told increasingly that gender is a social construct. And we're told that our sex ought to have no bearing at all on our identity in the world. In the 1970s, the social activist and radical feminist Shulamith Firestone, uh, she wrote this, The end goal of the feminist revolution must be, unlike that of the first feminist movement, not just the elimination of male privilege, but of the sex distinction itself. She goes on to say, The reproduction of the species by one sex, the woman, for the benefit of both, would be replaced by, or at least with the option of, artificial reproduction. And so she says, in revealing her goal, the tyranny of the biological family would therefore be broken. Now when she wrote that in the 1970s, much of what she said must have seemed to be outlandish and bizarre. But increasingly, her ideas are a lot more mainstream, it seems. More recently, uh, writing in the Guardian newspaper in May, the journalist Amy Westervelt points out that the topic of motherhood appears in just 3% of all recent papers, journal articles, and textbooks on gender theory. Just 3% of all books written on gender have anything to say on motherhood. She also comments as a journalist that for years, women's magazines have written articles on female sexuality promising great sex, whilst at the same time also being committed to a policy of we don't do motherhood. The fact that sex could lead to motherhood for women is seen by many as oppressive. So, sex differences are being eradicated from womanhood, and so is the value and importance of motherhood. Increasingly, the state plays the government, plays the part of the role of the parent. And if a young girl was to tell her careers advisor that when she grows up she wants to be a mum, she would most likely be greeted with strange stares and offered counselling. We devalue motherhood and womanhood as at our peril. We seek to do away with the differences between the sexes at our peril as well. The Christian message, however, is different. Rather than putting our differences against one another, rather than denying them at all, the Bible teaches that we need one another as one another. That although we are different, we complement one another as gravy complements chips or as cheese complements wine. The men are the cheese and the gravy. The two work to enhance and improve the other. Now in the gospel, God reconciles our differences by making the divided united. The two, one, Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free. And in his passage to the church on how men and women are meant to pray in their meetings, and uh, Paul concludes a discussion on head coverings in the ancient world by saying this. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 11:9, he says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So men and women are meant to honor one another as both men and as, as men and as women, recognizing the value and beauty of both. In churches, there ought to be no derogatory joking or sexist remarks 
just as there ought to be no chauvinism, belittling, racism, or classism. In fact, there should be no statements about inferiority of any kind among God's people. C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Narnia stories, writing about the eventual destiny of men and women in Christ, he saw this. He saw the value and the significance of the people around him. He said this, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strangely tempted to worship. In a society where women are not honoured as women, the society suffers And in a society where men are not honoured as men, it also suffers. Now, we live in a society, as we've seen, where womanhood and motherhood is not honoured or seen as valuable. Motherhood is not treated, uh, increasingly is not treated as a high calling for a woman. Instead, she's encouraged to go to form some kind of career to line the pockets of someone else rather than strengthen and develop her her own home and be a powerful influence in some young lives. The same could also be said of fatherhood, though. The image in popular culture of what a father is are these two, Daddy Pig and Phil Dunphy. I'm not having a go at Daddy Pig and Phil Dunphy, if any of you know who Daddy Pig and Phil Dunphy are, but if a If a grown-up, slightly clumsy and goofy playmate for their kids is about all a man can hope for as a father, that's the image of what fatherhood is. It's no wonder that fatherhood in our society is in a crisis as well. Fatherhood needs protecting and honoring in part because of its difference from motherhood. A father can much more easily avoid being a dad than a mother can avoid being a mum. When a child is born, the midwife never says to the woman, and who's the mum? Because she saw where the baby came from. On the other hand, every time a couple takes a child to register its birth, the registrar will always say, and who's the father? And it's at a moment like that that a good man will step up and say, I am. And it's a statement that a man will need to go on making throughout that child's life. I am his father. I am her father. But it's a statement that fewer and fewer men in our society are making. So in 1972, one in 14 households in the UK were fatherless. Now it would be in around one in four. What's more, there are 236 local authorities in England and Wales in which more than 50% of their families... in which more than 50% of the families don't have fathers. This is catastrophic. It's never happened before. Not in this society for hundreds of years, or if ever. And who knows where it will lead. But this is what happens when... A society doesn't honour men and women, but instead, when a society is bent on denying differences altogether, devaluing distinctions between people, and it ought not to be the case in the church, it must not be the case in the church. 
I want to come on to talk about the church briefly, how this plays out. Because in the, in the New Testament, it teaches... I'm sorry, I didn't realize this. <laughs> the New Testament teaches that the church is the as the household of God as a family of God, needs fathers. The church needs men who are going to protect and take responsibility for God's people. Thanks. I won't blow my nose into the microphone. (laughs) But I don't really know what to do with this. (laughs) The church needs men who are going to protect and take responsibility for God's people. And it's a charge that God lays at the man's feet as early on as Genesis 3. You see, when the man and woman disobey God and eat the fruit of the tree, it is the man that God speaks to and addresses. It is the man who calls to... Anybody else? It is the man that God speaks to and addresses. It is the man that God calls to take account and responsibility and blame for the actions of the entire human race. We are described as a people in the Bible as being in Adam rather than being in Eve because it was a man that was created as the representative head of humanity, regardless of how unpopular that statement might be. When the Bible calls the husband the head of his wife, it's with that imagery in mind. You see, to be the head doesn't simply mean that he's the boss or he's in charge any more than you would say of a physical body that the head is the boss of the heart. They work together. It is the man's responsibility before God to be on the lookout for trouble, to honor and protect his wife, and family, and to embody God's fatherly authority in the world. You see, God the Father calls himself Father and is the model for fathers, the model for husbands, and is the model for elders in the church. God the Father glorifies and honors God the Son. So that, so it is, the job of the head to honor the heart and to ensure its full flourishing and expression. And the way this translates into the life of a local church, which is called the family of God, is that its male leaders are called elders. Paul lays the requirements of eldership out for us in 1 Timothy 3. He says, an overseer in the church must be above reproach. He must be the husband of one wife. He must be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to care or manage his own household, how will he take care of God's? The pattern is, in order to oversee or govern in a church, to be a father in the church, a man must be able to oversee and father effectively in his own home. Elders are men called by God and appointed to guard and lead the church not exclusively 
or independently of women, it should be said. But nevertheless, they are to do it distinctly and deliberately. But as with the other aspects of our difference, so here, the way an elder is to govern is as a servant seeking to become less in order that the church members become more. My friend and church leader, a man named Phil Moore, says that eldership isn't meant to monopolize leadership, but to mobilize it. Elders are given to a church in order that the church's people are released into positions of leadership and authority, because that's what fathers do in a home. Elders are men who are told to take responsibility for the guarding of the church family. They're meant to take the rap for its shortcomings and failures. And it is men as elders who are meant to step up to the block first and offer their necks to the sword before anyone else. Christ offered his life for the church and he asks men to follow him in doing likewise for the bride. In the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, they address a church and they encourage them with the words, it is through much hardship that we must enter the kingdom of heaven. And the very next thing they do is appoint elders in the church. It is part of how the church prepares herself for hardship and survives hardship is by appointing fathers who get hit first when trouble comes. Because again, that's what fathers do. Now, it is also true that the church needs mothers. It's just not that, it's, it's just that isn't what's being referred to when Paul speaks of elders and the governing structure in a church. Given that the man bears a name used by God, Father, it is God's call on him that he be discouraged from sitting back passively on the sidelines and is called to embody instead God's fatherly action in the world. Families need men who engage in family life as an act of embodying God to the family. Churches need men who step up rather than step back and refuse to let others take the blame for the state of the church. Again, that isn't to say that women shouldn't or that they can't. It's just that here, Paul's talking about eldership. It should also be stressed again that eldership is distinct from leadership and the gift of leadership. Now in this church, we have men and women in leadership positions across the church, together using their gifts, together guiding the church and making decisions. Our senior leadership team, to use the language common in the world, is made up of men and women. It doesn't surprise me if a woman has a stronger leadership gift than her husband, nor does it surprise me if she's a better preacher, because the difference between men and women is not a difference of ability, it's a difference of kind. Men as fathers and potential fathers are called to take account for the church, even though it's the men and women together who end up steering it. Now, there are women who are recognized as mothers within the church, within this church. The church needs them. The role of woman and mother in the Bible is is a role of authority and of influence in a household. The church is the household of God. And we've not done so publicly. But as we move forward together, I think it's going to become increasingly important for us to publicly recognize the various leadership roles that people play in the church. Last December, we lost a mother of this church when Ali died. And we're still feeling the grief of it now. But the mothering that women, women like Jane and Ruth, have taken on ought to be commended and honoured 
the level of maternal care and concern that other women in the church, women like Polly and Amy feel, among many other women, needs valuing and acknowledging. In the church, there ought to be a recognition and an honouring of the beautiful differences between the sexes. Not a toxic competitiveness or a hierarchical approach to a family. It's a, it's a fairly dysfunctional family if you constantly need to remind the kids who's in charge. We need a church that doesn't have a toxic competitiveness, nor just a blamange of non-distinction. Ah, we're all one and the same. The church needs fathers and mothers. Okay, that's gender. Now for the last five minutes, I want to show partly how as an extension of that, we come on to look at gifts. So the church is a place where both men and women should flourish And it's the place where part of that flourishing is as a result of us using and honoring the various gifts among us, as Polly alluded to in her prophetic word. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says this, To each one in the church, to each one, no gender distinction, given through the manifestation of the Spirit, sorry, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. Then he lists more gifts, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy. But notice gifts are given for the common good, which means for all of our benefit. And in verse 26, he says, If one member in the church suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And then in Romans 12, Paul gives this instruction. He says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, use it in proportion to your faith. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And no gender distinctions put on any of those gifts, just use them for the common good. God has given you gifts that are to be used to help strengthen and build the local body of believers that you're a part of. Here again, we see the temptation to compete. My gift's better than your gift. Or because we're British, their gift's better than mine. Or I don't have any gifts. I don't have a gift as good as her. I'm not as valuable as he is. I don't get anywhere near as public profile as they do. But also the temptation is to deny any distinction at all. You're all incredible. You're all gifted. and You're all superstars. Everything. There's nothing you can't do. My friend went to a parents' evening recently. Went to his child's parents' evening where the teacher said something similar to that about his child. And he said it was quite amusing as he tries to convince the teacher that his son really wasn't good at everything. And there was lots of things his son wasn't good at. And the teacher kept jumping to the child's face. Oh, no, they are good at this. Oh, they are good at that. He's like, he's rubbish at that. (laughs) Anyway, it was just amusing, he said, as the battle went on. We need to honor and celebrate difference without being threatened or feeling threatened by one another. You know, part of our brokenness as human beings shows itself in that we often feel devalued and overlooked when someone else is honoured instead of us, rather than, like Paul says, rejoicing and sharing in their honour. I get my kids, I see this all the time. If, I comp- if they're together and I compliment one of them but not the other, the other one says, what about me? And I have to teach them, 
I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about him. Rejoice in what I'm saying about him. I'm not saying anything negative about you. Just your brother's better than you. (laughs) Obviously, don't say that. The chances are that if you don't know what your weaknesses are, or if you feel embarrassed or awkward, ashamed that you might have any weaknesses at all, the chances are you're not through on this. That probably would apply to most of us. In the church, though, we ought to work hard to ensure none of us derives our value or our worth or our identity from our gifts. If you're in public ministry, it's even more tempting for you. I'm Jez. I'm a preacher. What if I stop preaching? Has Jez died? I'm John. I'm a worship leader. Well, let's take the guitar out of his hand and see how he does then. Instead, we want to be a church. We want to celebrate the beautiful differences at work among us. So that when, then we'll be able to relate to what Paul says, that when one is honoured, all rejoice together. And that's what happened when we did the cardboard testimonies. Someone turned over a sheet of paper, expressed something God has done in their life. We all rejoiced with them as they were honoured. That's what the church is. Lastly, let's come to look very briefly at generations, what that looks like for generations. This brings us to another aspect of beautiful difference in the church. The church is the joy of the whole earth because it is the place that men and women recognize their beautiful differences. It's where each member recognizes the beautiful gifts and differences that they've been given. But it's also the family of generations where each is honored and esteemed not despite their differences, but because of who they are, their differences. Again, this is countercultural. We live in a society and a time that is obsessed with youth and in a culture that pushes its elderly to the margins and discounts and discredits their opinions, often demonizing their choices, as was seen with the Brexit result of two years ago. Now, I've heard some people say in the past, I don't go to church prayer meetings because there's too many old people go or there's not enough young people who go. I've met visiting people or a couple once who came to the church. They walked in and in a rather disgusted tone said, there's so many young people here and they never came back. (laughs) Instead... Let's be a church that honors and celebrates the beautiful differences among us. It was fantastic at the church barbecue last week to see that vision of family together. Not just old alongside young, but interacting together, being themselves without being threatened. See, the church is a community of brothers and sisters, of mothers and fathers, of granddads and grandmas. A place where people are honored and nurtured to become all that God has called them to be. It's my prayer that as a church, it's my prayer and my hope that the church in this town and across the world would live up to her potential and possibility. My prayer is that one day the world will be caught aghast by the beauty of the church. That like a diamond lying in the muddy banks of a Congolese river or like a flower bursting through on a dusty and dry African plain so the church would be seen in our towns against the backdrop of increasingly an, an increasingly godless society we want to show off 
who the church is. The joy of the whole earth is a community of people where the poor are honored and treated with the dignity and value that they have. Where the rich aren't deceived into putting their hopes or their identity in their wealth. The joy of the whole earth is a community where our cultural backgrounds and national backgrounds play second or third fiddle to our identity in Christ. Where we wouldn't say, I'm too English to understand these Africans or too American to get along with these Asians. But instead, we would die to our nationalities and see ourselves as one united in Christ. And we'd work through our misunderstandings. Repenting, offering forgiveness, asking for forgiveness where it is needed. You see, the joy of the whole earth is a community where men and women behave like brothers and sisters and not just potential sex partners. Where men and women behave as fathers and mothers. Where greatness is seen in terms of servanthood and where the old make way for the young, cheering them on at every step and every misstep. And there'll be lots of missteps but also a place where the young defer to the old and listen to and seek out their advice. That, and nothing less than that, is what God has called us to be. That is the blueprint of the church. That is the joy of the whole earth. A community of beautiful differences expressed in gender, in our gifts, and in our generations. And all of that is possible because of what Jesus did. Jesus' death on the cross was an act of destruction. When Jesus died, the Bible says, he destroyed the dividing walls of hostility between people and between genders. But that his death was also an act of creation. That on the cross, he was also in his death, in his body, was uniting all people under him as the head of the church. The head over all things. And so we, the people of God, are going to respond to Jesus, the one who destroyed and created. And we are going to seek hard with all of our might to not be conditioned and shaped by the spirit of our age, but instead shaped by the vision that God has for you, for us, for this town, for the church community, to be a people of beautiful difference. We're going to respond together by breaking bread. Uh, this is a statement of unity and diversity, if ever there was one. I'm going to invite the band to join us. I'll pray. And then when you're ready, if you're a Christian, please feel free to make your way to the table, rip some bread, take some juice as an act of communion and remembering what God has done in Christ. Let's pray.